HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at HearstRanch.com. This week on Meet and 3, we're ringing in the start of our fifth season with dispatches from Portland, Oregon's biggest food festival, Feast Portland. We're bringing you words of wisdom on launching a food business from food blogs. Most acquaintances from high school have now tried to start a food or fashion blog in some sense and quit very quickly afterwards. To ice cream shops. Every city you go to, the salt and straw is completely different than any other city. We'll bring you insights and anecdotes about the business of the business. We were like, cool, we're going to do this. We're going to try to raise $75,000 and we'll see what happens. And it was like the most gut-wrenching, miserable month. Tune in to Meet and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, hello, Heritage Radio Network listeners tuning in from 165 countries around the world, about a million listens a month. And I am willing to bet most of them, all of them, some of them are tuned in right now listening to Tech Bites, the weekly show where we look at the intersection of food and technology. And today's show is all about something that has been dominating food news headlines and also just news headlines the plant-based burger wars. In the past few weeks alone, there have been announcements from six of the big, big, big global companies from Nestle to McDonald's to Trader Joe that they're all coming out with their own plant-based burger. It's crazy. And I think the New York Times published somewhere in the ballpark of six or seven articles in the past 10 days about beef. Is it good for you? Is it good for the planet? Meat? plant-based burgers? Is it the solution? What's happening? So today we have a very topical show. I have sitting in the studio with me, Jeffrey Amascato, who is the vice president of supply chain and menu innovation at Shake Shack. So he's here to talk to us about burgers, plant-based burgers, veggie burgers, and all that stuff. Maybe the, the secret recipe to the custard, which is not a burger, but nonetheless delicious and top secret. Thank you for coming out. Thank you, Jennifer. Pleasure to be here. So we are going to kick off the show like we always do. We're going to talk about apps, favorite apps, old ones, new ones. The only rule is that you cannot talk about an app that you're affiliated with, so you are not able to say your favorite app is the Shack 
app, which I understand the value of it. There was a long time ago I worked at Guilt Group. I worked at Guilt Taste, and we had an office. Our office was on Madison Square Park, where the original and first Shake Shack is located. And at that time, the lines were just literally around the block, and we would be able to look out the window and see how long the lines were. And if we really wanted Shake Shack and the lines were long, we would send the interns to wait. Well, back then we had the uh, webcam that you could have looked at as cam. well. The shack cam, yeah. yeah. But it was Still kind of, there. It was kind of fun. It, does it feed into the app? It does. Oh, that's brilliant. That is really brilliant. It used to be a thing when it first came out. I remember all the blogs reported onto it. It was the perfect, you know, internet bloggy kind of thing that Shake Shack had a feed of a live cam for the line size. Good to know how long the interns were going to be gone for. Exactly, exactly. Well, you know, it took a long time. (laughs) (laughs) So that said, Shack app being off the table, what's your favorite app these days? So I do a lot of travel uh, going around and seeing our different suppliers. And recently a colleague of mine, um, I love coffee. And no matter where I go, I always want to get a good cup of coffee. And I don't want to end up in the local Starbucks that they have. I want to find like who's good, who's doing pour over, uh, who's maybe locally roasting. So there's an app that uh, she told me about that I've been using recently is uh, Bean Hunter. Mm. And you can go on wherever your location is and just uh, pull up. Yeah, what are the local uh, coffee companies around me and go find somebody. And you'll be really surprised. I was recently in northwest Iowa visiting uh, a hog farm, and there was a really good local coffee company there that was bringing beans in from uh, this place up in Minnesota. And it was just a, a great surprise in the morning to wake up and get an excellent cup of pour over and a really good biscuit to go along with it. Beans grown in Minnesota. Uh, roasted in Minnesota. Roasted in Minnesota. Because I was going to yeah. say, Minnesota's not, not bean climate. the place I think of when I think of growing coffee beans. Climate change. <laughs> <laughs> well placed for the show, Matt. That voice in the booth is Matt Patterson, who is our engineer and Heritage Radio Network studio manager. Matt, do you have an app for us this week? I don't have an app. I'm downloading a, a bean hunter right now. Okay. Well, Matt doesn't have an app, but he does have a plant-based burger story for us. Yeah, I mean, because it is ubiquitous in the news right now, I'm sure it was on my brain. And maybe two weeks ago, my uh, wife and I were walking towards home, and it was a little late at night, and I think we were flying out the next day, so the fridge was running low, and we were like wait a second, we're passing by this Burger King. We've lived in this neighborhood for four years. We've never gone to the Burger King. Uh, And we finally realized, like, wait, Impossible Burger, they have those. And I was vegan for a long time. I'm still pescatarian. uh, So I'm uh, very happy to see the proliferation of any sort of uh, alternative meat offering. And so we went in and uh, tried them out. How was it? It's fine. I've had Impossible Burgers before, which were quite good, and Beyond Burgers before, which I do a lot at home. I don't know a lot, but, you know, from time to time. Uh, the Burger King, I got it with the cheese on it, and, man, is that cheese just not very good. So, so is it not the quality necessarily of the plant-based patty, but the quality also of the stuff that's around the patty and the patty vehicle? Because at the end of the day... 
I mean, I don't want to make a gross generalization, but the Burger King stuff is crap, right? Yeah. Yeah. And you definitely... <laughs> I mean, the sauce, the blah, you know, all that's just crap. You felt that. You and, felt the crap uh, surging into your system. So, and I mean, I also, I have not, I've had an Impossible Burger like once or twice before, and it's been years, so I can't fairly... Uh, judge compare them yeah would but. you go to a mcdonald's that's one of the headlines this week mcdonald's announced a partnership with beyond burger that they're putting a beyond burger big mac or mac or something on the menu but only in canada uh, to test but again to your point that you know it wasn't that great and the cheese was not good it's still going to be mcdonald's so it's still going to be the crap bun and the crap whatever else my main takeaway is that like the next time and this does not happen that often but the next time i'm driving down the highway and i desperately need a pit stop and to get some food i'm going to be very excited that these places are doing that because Other... fast food becomes a the standard fast food chain becomes more viable to you yeah oh no they were never even an option on the table unless i was gonna just what like, about the salad the sad fries i guess i mean at the end of the day i'm not gonna become like a big mcdonald's junkie no matter what i'm sure they have things for me i am you know yeah but i'm it's it's enough for me to try it once or twice and i'm sure when i'm if if i'm driving down the highway and feeling stuck i'll now consider it but it's not enough to overcome the feeling that you're supporting the evil empire yeah it's that, that that's <laughs> you know yeah because for me the argument about whether or not meat is healthier or plant-based is health like i've never cared about what is healthy that's never been it's never been about that for me so what is it about if it's about the environment it's about the environment and it's about not paying other people to torture animals okay fair Uh, those are the two things i cared about i always thought that being vegan was probably not particularly healthy for you as a human being uh so okay good to know i don't i don't care how that fight shakes out so now we have a very nice uh, review of the Burger King Impossible Whopper and a little insight into the inner culinary workings and philosophies and beliefs of Matt Patterson. Thank you for sharing. Everyone needed to know. <laughs> <laughs> so, Jeff, you are entrenched in the burger business. I'm a huge fan of Shake Shack. What what is all of this happening now in the news? Does it make any difference in the business world? Does it affect uh, the day to day in your operations? Yes, no. You have had the Veggie Shack, which is your own proprietary plant based burger on the menu since 2018, and you've had the Shroom Shack, Shroomburger, Shroomburger. Sorry, since the opening. So you've been in the vegetarian vegan burger space from the beginning when you see all this news and you see all the 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 names of big companies like trader joe and nestle and the mcdonald's news does that have an impact for you when you're thinking about food well what you said before i mean right now trying to get through everything that's being written is like drinking water from a fire hose there's just so much written out there and so many different viewpoints and we're just doing a lot of learning and listening right now i mean we are a burger chain, and I love to eat burgers, and we've had our amazing uh, shroom burger on since you know, we first opened in 2004, and uh, that's been uh, our original meat alternative, and people have always, always loved it, and as we've 
kitchen. And it's clearly mushroom. It's, it's a, mushroom. It's clearly a mushroom. It's not a composite of stuff. Or it is a whole portobello mushroom. Mushroom plywood or something nope. like that. It's identifiable as like it, the natural form of the ingredient that it is. It is a beautiful whole mushroom, whole mushroom, uh, roasted and sliced and stuffed with cheese and handmade, and it, it's a. It's a beautiful thing. And, you know, it's one of those things that goes back to our fine dining heritage. Like that was created out of the kitchens of fine dining restaurants within right. Union Square Hospitality Group. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've always had that. And as Beyond and Impossible started to come on the scene uh, quite a few years ago, it made us start thinking about, well, what's the next iteration? What else can we do with our menu? Do we want to offer one of those? Um, or do we want to go down a route of creating our, our own and you know having the instincts that we have of wanting to create our own kind of led us towards how, how can we think about it differently than what these two companies are, are approaching it and um, you know seeing their trajectory from the very early days where they were basically just coming onto market and, and prototypes to where they are now is congratulations to them. It's been really cool to see, uh, but it's also kind of reconfirmed our uh, direction of wanting to focus on whole veggies turned into a patty versus trying to mimic a, a beef patty. We have a really great beef patty. We have the alternative for, uh, a, you know, the shroom burger, but you know, what else can we do and what more can we add to the dialogue of, uh, of a plant-based burger that's not that, you know, Boca burger that you remember from a long time I've ago. I've never had one of those. N- neither have I, but you can think in your mind. have you had a Boca burger? Oh, he stepped out. So the whole, the current plant-based burger situation is very complex and very dense. So I want to try as best we can in the next 33 minutes. <laughs> to dissect the burger? Yeah, to, to just follow just a couple of the different storylines. So I think what you said about Shake Shack having its origins in fine dining, and for people who don't know the, the origin story, Madison Square Park is in Manhattan. It's on the corner, basically on the corner of 23rd Street and 5th Avenue. And years ago, it was kind of desolate and not in great shape. And the neighborhood was a little weird and... There wasn't that much going on, but the Union Square Hospitality Group had a couple restaurants that sat on the park in beautiful historical buildings. And what they did initially was because Union Square Hospitality's founder, Danny Meyer, is from the Midwest, Chicago, hot dogs, all that kind of stuff is deep in his culinary DNA. They would push a hot dog cart from the restaurant into the park and sell hot dogs. Very simply, hot dog cart in a park in New York City. And then the money that was raised would go to the Madison Square Park Conservancy Group to sort of then upgrade and clean the park that was, you know, their front yard and in their neighborhood. And that cart grew into a stand that was small and temporary and only opened during the warmer months. And then it grew and became permanent, was open all year round. And then there were other outlets. And then they went public and you know, it's a, it's a huge, huge ripple. But the onset of it being food prepared in a very high-end fine dining restaurant kitchen being pushed out in a cart to sell to the public, I think is an important piece because you are food sellers making food to sell to people. The Impossible Foods and the Beyond Burgers are scientists and environmentalists trying to solve an environmental issue 
by using their scientific methodology of laboratory test, trial, error, to come to a solution to the burger that will save the planet. And so satisfying people's burger hunger is incidental, but necessary to their plan. So with that said, the, imp the inspiration for Shake Shack, for your veggie shack, what, what did you need to do that was different from the already vegan shroom burger? Well, the vegan shroom burger, as, as great as it is, might not be perceived as the healthiest. I mean, it's a deep fried uh, uh, burger. Uh, it's delicious, but we wanted something that we could more associate with fresh vegetables and f freshness, really. Um, and as we thought about it, we wanted to keep that burger experience. We didn't want to add a salad to the menu and, and go that route. But you know, people are coming to us for that nice, fun burger experience with their group of friends. And we wanted to come up with a way where we could get that experience into a patty without trying to be something it's not. And you know, having that, as you're explaining, having that heritage within fine dining and that desire to, to cook and, and make things ourselves led us down this path of what can we do to add to the, the dialogue of, of, of veggies uh, within a patty form. And you know what we came up with in our first version that's been out there since last year is a, a beet-based burger with some beans and, um, and, and some really good uh, flavorings inside of it that gives it that bit of umami. You know, we're not trying to replicate a burger. Um, it's not red because we want it to be red like meat, but we wanted it to be a good, hearty experience um, that doesn't necessarily weigh you down by having uh, a lot of cheese and a, and a fried mushroom uh, along with it. Is there anything else that you felt compelled to create on your own instead of just going out to buy something? I mean, I'm assuming, and I, I could be wrong, but I'm assuming you don't make the cheese or the buns or so many other things that you serve. You don't currently have, you know, farms for the chickens and things like that. So what was it about this product that you felt compelled to create the recipe for one in-house when part of what you do in supply is to go out and find good ones and bring them in. And if maybe, you know, you don't have a, find a bakery that does the burger bun that you want, you work with a bakery and they create a shack bun that they just sell to you. So what was it about the patty, though, that required internal development and internal production? We tasted a lot of different patties, and mm. of everything we tasted, nothing got us excited. Um, so it, it's really about the, the excitement factor. I mean, if we can't find something out there that doesn't meet the needs and, and desires that we have as, as you know, culinary professionals and you know, chefs in the kitchen, then we're, we're not going to just get whatever's out in the market and then try to dress it up by changing or, or masking the flavor by putting cheese and sauces and toppings on it. We wanted a really good patty that we felt really strong about, that whether you put the cheese and sauces on it or ordered it plain, you're going to have great excitement uh, about it. And there just wasn't anything out there at the time that, or even now, that we felt very compelled to say, okay, this is the one that, that fits within a, a shack restaurant. So with all of the new contenders in the plant-based burger arena, I mean, just six announced this week, 
Do you continue to sort of R&D and, and taste them? The new ones as they come on the market, are you still looking potentially for a partner and a source or have you just decided that you like yours best? We're taking two approaches. We're tasting everything that comes out on the market. Um, there's one that we tasted last week that you may have never even heard of, but it ended up in our in our office. And there's new ones that have come out that we haven't had uh, a chance to sample yet. But we're going to continue to try all of those while we also iterate on what we currently have and some new ideas that we have. We have a great innovation kitchen full of chefs that you know want to create and come up with uh, interesting flavor profiles and uh, you know trying to just limit ourselves to what other companies are developing and waiting for something to you know come in the door that somebody else created we're trying to stay ahead of it and really focus on what gets us excited and what we can create internally and it's a you know we're creating it internally and working with some external partners to help uh, produce it for us. Um, well, you're not growing beets. We're not growing beets, no. <laughs> <laughs> so you got to get the beets from someplace. And there's other vegetables we're looking at uh, as as different potentials. And you know, we just want to we want to continue to hone and, and fine and refine it until we have something that uh, is spectacular. Right now, we're serving the veggie shack in about 20 shacks um, in in three different markets around the U.S. New York. In the U.S. only, though. In the, in the U.S. only, yeah, mm-hmm. New York, Texas, and and L.A. And you know, we're getting really good reception and, and feedback. How's it doing in Texas? I mean, I just think of Texas as barbecue country, which inherently means meat. I'll be a little more specific. Austin. Oh. Does that change it a little bit? <laughs> yes, that changes it a lot. That changes it quite a bit. Okay. How's it doing in Austin? Probably good. Yes. Yeah. It, they're all Austin different. are looking for a meat alternative. There's, they're all different markets to gather data from. And that's what's important is as we continue to learn and um, as we want to think about it going national, um, there's still areas where we say, you know, it could be a little better here, it could be a little better there. And, you know, it is that, it's that testing phase that we want to feel really confident about. Um, and, uh, you know, we get, you know, all the guest feedback that we get, we know that there's regulars and shacks around the country that come in specifically for it. And it, it's great to understand why it is and uh, what it is about it that, get some uh, desire to, to come in for it. So interesting. Well, we are going to do a little information gathering right now and take a break and find out who the sponsor is of this episode. Did you know Heritage Radio is a 501c3 nonprofit and we're kind of like public radio? We keep the lights on and the mics hot out of the generosity of our members, who are mostly listeners like you. From grants and from sponsors like this one. Stay with us. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. The Hearst family has been raising cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of California's Central Coast for over 150 years. Piedra Blanca Rancho in San Simeon is the original Hearst Ranch, founded by George Hearst in 1865. George's son was the famous publisher, William Randolph Hearst. In addition to being known for building the iconic Hearst Castle, William was, like his father before him, an avid rancher. In his words, I would rather spend a month at the ranch than any place in the world. Thanks to one of the largest land conservation easements in California history, a joint effort with the California Rangeland Trust, the American Land Conservancy, and the state of California, the working landscape at Hearst Ranch will be preserved forever. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. 
Well, if you're just joining us and you're wondering what the hell you clicked on, this is Tech Bytes, the weekly show on the Heritage Radio Network, where we talk to influencers and innovators in the food tech space. And today we are talking with Jeffrey Amoscato, the Vice President of Supply Chain and Menu Innovation at Shake Shack. Our topic is plant-based burger wars, because if you've been reading the news any news for the past few weeks, there's a lot of action happening in the plant-based burger category. It's kind of amazing. Uh, And in news that's happening this week, it's everything from environmental to health to partnerships and companies developing their own new products. It's just staggering. So the, the story's really dense. We were just before the break talking about how Shake Shack comes from a very culinary point of view versus a scientific laboratory point of view. Shake Shack is trying to solve a problem of feeding people good food, I suppose, in a good way. Given options, great options to come back. (laughs) I think famously, you know, Pat Brown, who is the founder of Impossible Foods, is trying to, um, as was reported in The New Yorker in an epic article which um, if you read it online, it'll tell you it's an hour-long read. It's pretty dense. Um, One of his goals is to put, you know, the meat business out of business to save the environment, which is a completely different mission from Shake Shack. So do you think that consumers make a difference between those two missions? Do you think it makes a difference to a consumer who's thinking about what they're going to have on a Friday night before they go to a movie? Does it make a difference in what you produce for the veggie shack that you're not science people and that you're not in a laboratory? I don't, I don't know that it makes a difference to the end user or not. I think it's a little early to tell what the real habits of choosing it and the purpose of choosing it is, whether it's environmental or just healthy, that flexitarian um, desire to, to eat or have what multiple options. What you want options. when you want it yeah, some of yeah. the time. <laughs> Right, right, exactly. Um, I I actually read something interesting today. It was a um, a financial uh, research and just thinking about is it a fad or is it a trend? And it's now being viewed as there's enough data out there that it is is a trend. It's not a fad. So we don't think it's going What's the difference between trend and fad? Uh, Technically, I don't... In journalism, when you're a journalist and you're writing a story or you have an idea for a story as a freelance writer for many, many years, the general rule of thumb for a trend is if you can find three examples of the idea happening at three different locations or three different businesses, then you have a trend. Which I think is what you can get out of these two companies now, given the impossible Whopper and the McDonald's and the other large chains that have have um, you know been offering it. Yeah. I think if you rewind a year, you're probably looking at it as like, okay, there's one or two. Is it really going to catch on? And then in that really epically long the New Yorker article, you heard and read you know reasons why it took a, a while to to catch on. But I, I think to to try to answer. But just before you step off the New Yorker article, it has some great uh, deep history about vegetarian and plant-based alternatives to things. And it spends time talking about the Kellogg Sanitarium in Battle Creek, which was the producers of of (laughs) cornflakes. Yes, but 
the idea was that you should be eating a certain type of food and bland and plant-based that's better for your body and better sort of like philosophically from an, a, a spiritual point of view. And that was where some of the first plant-based patties and things were being produced. So certainly we've had the fad of plant-based meat-type substitutes, the Boca Burger, the Garden Burger. Those have all been around for a long time. But something has happened that's taken it from the fad to the trend. Well, I think they're talking about how to get that same psychological experience of eating beef and having that those same all the different nuances and chemical compounds that are happening that want that are creating the desire to go back and having it over and over again and you know i guess we can argue whether they've cracked that code or not whether you're going to go buy it again and again or just buy it once and try it and then move on but you know we i think we can see from multiple restaurants adding it that there seems to be some traction of ability to proliferate it more than where it is right now. Is that traction of consumer demand or traction of a really good sales and marketing team? I think really good marketing to start with and over time we'll tell if uh, consumer demand is there to maintain it. Interesting. I do have anecdotally a story of someone that I know who is vegan who tried the Impossible Burger at one of the, I think it was at Momofuku Nishi when it first opened, they had the Impossible Burger on the lunch menu. And it was a thing. Oh, have you tried it? Have you had it? It's at Momofuku, but only at lunch. So marketing genius. And she didn't like it because it was too much like meat. She didn't want to have the sensation that she was eating meat. So as a vegetarian, from her point of view, it's not just that she didn't want to eat it, but she didn't want to feel like she was eating it either because the sensation of it was just too close to it, so she wasn't going to have it again. And I thought that was very interesting and also perhaps a compliment to the product. But then also, again, so many of the different articles that talk about plant-based burgers, part of why the nomenclature is now plant-based versus vegan or vegetarian Vegans and vegetarians make a small percentage, make up a small percentage of the population. I think it's something in the ballpark of like 5%. Yeah, I think vegans are less than two. Yeah. So you're not going to make a huge dent in any kind of consumption or sales if you're only talking about 2 to 5% of the population. Uh, it's an interesting point uh, of wanting to eat it and it tasting like a beef patty. And uh, there's a large, obviously a large percentage of the population eats meat. But then there's that population that, that doesn't for different reasons. I, I have this conversation with my wife all the time. She eats meat, but she doesn't eat beef at all. And I was like, do you want to try the Beyond or the Impossible? And as she, we've listened to different read articles or listened to different podcasts of the different uh, founders. She's like, I, I don't understand why I would want to eat this. I don't want to eat beef to begin with. I'm not looking for a replacement. So, and that's from a mindset of somebody that eats meat, but just not beef. So they're, they're not veg- she's not vegetarian or, or vegan and not trying to find a replacement for, for meat, but she's also not a meat eater of beef that's looking for that replacement. So, you know, trying to understand, like, who is who's this really for and what is a long-term, uh, you know, repeat behavior of, of trying this over and over again. And you, you, in a way, you may have 
isolated or alienated the vegan population, but that's a small percentage. So are you going to get enough of the flexitarian or meat eaters to continue to buy it, um, you know, for years to come? It's an interesting question. And, you know, as you said, only time will tell. And now time is starting to tell that maybe some of those initial scientific and medical reports about whether beef is good or bad for you health-wise may or may not have been accurate or not. Did that just come out today? Yeah, I think it, it was either today or yesterday. It's in this long stream of articles that the New York Times has put out recently. And sort of like they snowball off each other. Like the report comes out and then the, the deconstruction of the report and then points of view. And it's really fascinating. And it's all happening now at the same time. Can't we just say eat in moderation? <laughs> Isn't that <laughs> I, I the solution? I think we do. <laughs> Does it all wind up just being the Mediterranean diet? Kind of. Mostly plants, some fish and meat, olive oil's good for you, <laughs> occasionally wine. It's all delicious. <laughs> One of the articles about the issue of solving the environmental problems and solving climate change by moving to plant-based burgers. One of the most interesting points about the art about that idea that was contained in one of the articles in the times was that there's a many different components environmentally that the beef business touches it's cutting down forest and forestry for the livestock space and to grow the grains and the feed for the livestock it's the water load how much water you have to feed the cows how much water you need to grow the the grains the methanes that the cows produce but the scientists that they interviewed in the article said it's not actually the burgers that are the problem because burgers, if we understand and what we know about industrialized meat production, you don't go grow cows for the burgers, you grow cows for dairy and for steaks. In, in commercial hamburger, it's all the stuff that's left over at the end of those different processes. It's really only fine dining and you know finer restaurants that are taking steak cuts of meat and putting them into the grinder and turning them into the burger. That's not what you get in the supermarket, in the tray with the cellophane wrap, and that's not what you get when you're at a fast food place. So the scientist said, if you eliminated all the burgers tomorrow, you would still need the same amount of cows because you haven't figured out how to replace dairy and steak. And that the place people are trying to figure out how to replace steak is not from a you know laboratory composite of bringing a bunch of ingredients together to make a patty but actually trying to grow steaks with like stem cell research where you don't cobble it together like plywood you actually grow one which sounds just wacky to me not sure i'm going to be throwing that on my grill anytime soon <laughs> like growing a prime rib in like a beaker, I guess, a really big beaker. Maybe that's the future. A vertical factory? An yes. old warehouse? Something. I don't know. Is it underground with the hydroponic lettuce? It's a hugely complex issue. I mean, it's not, like you said, it's not just about ground beef. Ground beef helps get uh, what the industry would call you know, carcass utilization. You, know, you want to get every... Every last morsel of, of meat yep. off that cattle and get all that utilization. And uh, it, it's important. If you didn't have that, you'd have an even more unsustainable 
uh, situation. And then also the carcass use for medical and cosmetic and things like that. You know, the gelatin and the different things that come from the bones and the other bits and pieces. There's that we byproducts don't eat. for probably 99.9 something percent of, of that carcass. And uh, everything has a, a purpose. Um, so just saying that you can eliminate the ground beef and the problem goes away, it's not getting to, to everything. Um, or most of it. No, no. Or. The interesting thing also is when you have these different burgers at the different restaurants, you're still having it with mayonnaise and cheese, mostly. Matt, are you available for commentary? I am. Did you have your Whopper with dairy cheese? Oh, absolutely. And that was like the worst part of it. In fact, I would probably not. I would, I would, it, it would, it would have been considerably better had I omitted the cheese. And I like cheese. I just don't like whatever that is that they're serving. But you have good cheese at Shake Shack. We do. So if you had the, the veggie burger with the cheese, then it's not vegetarian. It's not. The patty is developed to be vegan. So if you have it with if you cheese, eat cheese or can or, you put bacon on it? Sure, if you want to. <laughs> a, a veggie burger with bacon is like one of the finest delights in life. <laughs> <laughs> That's where the flex part comes it in. It feels intrinsically wrong when you do it. Or special, like a holiday. Yeah. <laughs> so, so many interesting things. The other thing about the, the really industrial, multinational meat industry, I think the statistic that was quoted in one of the Times articles was that the meat industry in the U.S. is $200 billion dollars. Sounds very accurate. And that's a lot of people. That's a lot of people, and that's a lot of jobs also. And you wonder if when one, if the object is to make the footprint for this industry smaller. You can make up for it in the other industry. If the other industry makes up for it. If it's, you know, transitions like that are always difficult. I think we're living through the transition in the retail arena retail brick and mortar getting smaller fulfillment getting bigger delivery delivery services courier messenger fedex ups all getting bigger so things are just shifting around the board and that's difficult i think as the change happens so rapidly but will that 200 billion dollar industry be redistributed i would imagine it would have to be somehow it just depends on on which direction it goes and, uh, and what land is used for it? Is it repurposed land that was uh, cattle was grazed on? Are the factories repurposed and turned into well, that, production? I mean, there, that there's, might be some there's a lot of, the, of trickle down to it. That might be some of the urban design and architectural challenges. Every now and again, you read an article about, you know, some design challenge somewhere about what to do with the empty shopping mall. How do you repurpose a shopping mall to make it a you know, to revitalize it and yeah. make it a destination and make it a part of the community because nobody's shopping anymore. So maybe that will be, you know, future design challenge. What do you do? Hydroponic with farms. Perhaps. Or maybe just everything will collapse and be post-apocalyptic like so many of the movies we love and we'll all just be living in those shopping malls and then the laboratory burgers will become necessity because that'll be that. Maybe they'll become the luxury. <laughs> Perhaps. So many in this, you know, this is a very timely show, and I don't think that we really have 
any answers or conclusions about anything at this point in time because there's just so much happening and as you said earlier there's not enough time that's gone by to see how people really react to it what becomes a part of their everyday diet and habit and belief oftentimes people don't know something one of the I think something that's happening right now which is perhaps not similar but an idea of consumers engaging in something and using something that they're not entirely aware of how it works are the uh, restaurant delivery services. We're seeing some, you know, there was that Grubhub website, Gate, and the... Was that Grub or DoorDash? I think it was Grubhub. We did an episode on it earlier this year. There have been innumerable, well, not innumerable, there have been a lot of scandals with both DoorDash and Grubhub have both had multiple, to my knowledge. We had on this show over the summer, episode 184, Grubhub Gate, and we had the reporter who was the staff writer at the New Food Economy, Claire Brown, come on and talk about that whole thing. We also did an episode very, very early on in Tech Bytes, Our Delivery Service is Bad for Restaurants, and in essence, it talks about how the 15 to 30% commission that a delivery service takes from a restaurant is essentially the restaurant's profit margin. Over the last few years, the amount of change that we've seen between that veggie labor, I mean, it's just like, it, it's a warp speed of, of the change coming at us and, you know, trying to keep up with, you know, if we're going to create a great veggie burger, we also have to think about how well does it deliver. Right. And it's just another complexity. How well can our staff recreate it and cook it every single time? all these things coming together at once. Which you probably didn't have to think about when you first started working at Shake Shack. Absolutely and that wasn't not. even that long ago. No. So maybe as people become more aware of these different things, the ideas, the environment, there was a letter, there was a, in a completely different news feed that I have, a woman was writing an, a letter into a publication saying, I recently switched from dairy milk to almond milk to be healthier and better for the planet, but now I understand that almond milk and growing almonds has its own negative, has its own, um, you know, negative environmental implications because of all the water and the trucking and all that kind of stuff. So what do I do now? Well, and then oat milk apparently and soybean milk are have, have a smaller environmental <laughs> footprint, so maybe that's better and... That's the other one that we're really watching closely is all the different dairy alternatives. Quote I wouldn't even call them milk, but you know what, what is it, what's the other versions? And there's some delicious vegan ice cream out there, air quotes around ice mm-hmm. cream, um, that, that I've tried that I just uh, I could eat a pint. And I think calorie-wise it's just as bad as, as a regular one, so you're, you're not really winning on that necessarily. But um, it, that's just a whole other area that you know while we're – developing a, a veggie patty there's also this area of well next are vegan shakes and vegan will you ice be doing cream. that will you be doing vegan concretes at shake shack or the vegan hot dog i mean hot dogs are a big part of the shake shack lineup gonna do a vegan dog the, there's no immediate timeline for anything again we have this awesome innovation kitchen that we get to play around with things and there, there's some really cool companies that we've been in touch with um, and, and even friends of ours, like uh, we're friends with the people over at Salt and Straw, and when they send us some vegan ice cream, we get excited. What does it taste like in a shape? What does it taste like in a in a concrete? And you know, those are just things that you know 
with a culinary perspective, it, it's just a, we're, we're kids in a candy store when, when we get those. So uh, we, we love to see them and, and we love to, to play around with them. But, um, you know, right now our focus is definitely on what is our version of a, of a veggie patty. And, um, you know, we want to, whatever we create, be ahead of the game with it. And uh, when we get there, then we'll take a look at other areas of menu that we can you know, further develop and put our own Shake Shack stamp on um, for, for our guests and fans. Do you worry about the supply? Sometimes I wonder, I know that that was initially one of the issues with Impossible Foods and how so much of their recent fundraising went into just expanding their infrastructure to make more. How do you, does that, I'm sure that must factor into how you decide what to develop and then how you roll it out onto the menus. For sure. I mean, I get to wear different hats at, at, the, at work. So uh, there's my supply chain hat where I need to worry about, are we going to be able to get enough Are you going to come it? back and talk about blockchain? <laughs> uh, maybe, maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> I listened to that episode and that was way over my head. Yeah. Um, it's a good one though. It is. It yeah, is. That's episode... 158, um, was it? Yeah, a 152, 152 blockchain and the IBM Food Trust using blockchain technology to track the food supply. But it is certainly a, uh, a thought and consideration as we go into it. Um, uh, fortunately, we're at a size. We're not McDonald's. We're not Burger King. We don't have thousands and thousands of locations. We're still uh, a, a relatively small company. Um, so we have flexibility and, and a nimbleness to it that is uh, definitely an advantage for us. Um, I keep the supply consideration in mind, but you know, really leading with the culinary hat and what is going to be most exciting for us. Um, but you know, talking to these companies, it is definitely a top top of the mind question to understand. Like, okay, if we're going to go down whatever road, what is the, the supply continuity there? And one of the interesting just little quirks is both the CEO of Impossible Foods and Beyond Burger both have last name Brown, not related. So I don't know if you need to have somebody whose last name is Brown heading up the plant-based food division. Uh, I'll pass on that. it's (laughs) It's a quirky coincidence. Brown and Brown. It, it took a while to get the, the two names straight in my mind and remember <laughs> who was with what company. We need to do a show with the two of them together just to have differentiation. They definitely have different viewpoints. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, we are out of time, and this is a giant, giant topic that I think we've really only scratched the surface on. If you are interested in learning more about Impossible Foods, check out episode 89. If you're interested about blockchain, which is fascinating, that's episode 152. All good ones. If you are interested in more information about Shake Shack or getting one of those veggie shacks for yourself, you can try the Shack app. You can follow Shake Shack on social media. They are at Shake Shack, and their website is shakeshack.com. If you are one of those people who is crazy for all that pumpkin stuff in the fall, I mean, talk about... I mean, talk about trends that are just taking over the world. The whole pumpkin thing is, I don't understand it. But today, October 1st, if you're listening in the future, marks the day when now the pumpkin shake is available at Shake Shack. So run, don't walk until November 11th, as long as you have to have it. It's absolutely delicious. I almost feel like I'm pumpkined out, though, and it hasn't even started. That's because it's been starting earlier and earlier every year. But you have to save room for ours. Okay. All right. Well, 
It's plants and plants, right? Plants and plants. <laughs> and it's okay, and that's, that's healthy for me, right? Absolutely. <laughs> so I want to thank Jeffrey Amoscato for coming out to have this conversation. Maybe we'll have you come back and let us know how things are developing, and we can check in on all these different stories. And also, you know, what you mentioned earlier just about how rapidly the technology world is changing for restaurant people. It's something we talk about all the time, and it's always a good topic for a roundtable. If you want more Tech Bites, you can find us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher Radio, everywhere podcasts are found. You can find us on heritageradionetwork.org in the archives and live on Tuesday nights at 6.15 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. You can email us, techbytes at heritageradionetwork.org. We would love to hear from you. We love to hear ideas, pitches, innovations, suggestions, comments. If you want to meet me in person, you should come to the 10th anniversary gala that we are having on Monday, November 11th. It is going to be at the Brooklyn Botanic Garden. It's a beautiful event. I will be there. We have early bird ticket pricing available just until October 10th. Buy a ticket, support our 10 years of food radio, help us bring you another decade. I'm going to thank Matt Patterson for his uh, vegan, vegetarian, flexitarian point of view and manning the control panel as our engineer. Thank Uptown Nico, the DJ who so generously created and gives us our amazing theme song. I am Jennifer Leutzi, your host and producer, and this is Tech Bites. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Just enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. <laughs>